Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. It's your host, Shadi Naban, a hematologist and a medical oncologist with interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. Today's podcast is really an interesting podcast. It goes over a lot of things, but it's ultimately about patient's choice. I came across a story of an oncology group that sued Jefferson over anti-competitive practices. Basically, this is an oncology group that is privately owned and has been in practice in the city of Philadelphia for decades. And as part of their services, they take care of patients in a specific hospitals in the Philadelphia area. Jefferson acquired that hospital, and they basically pretty much decided to not renew the staff privileges to these doctors and to let them out of the building where they have had a lease that was actually um, still valid. But uh, they basically said, you have 90 days to vacate the premises. This is not easy. And the lawsuit, the group filed a lawsuit on September 5. And basically, they accused Jefferson of unreasonable restraint of trade, unfair trade practices, antitrust violations, tortious interference with business relations, and breach of contracts. And you are going to hear from the two leaders of the group, the Alliance Oncology Group, Drs. Moshe Chasky and Dr. Lor Turgeon. Both will be on today's podcast talking to me and to you about everything that has happened that led to this lawsuit. Is this good or bad? Well, obviously, it's bad to disrupt the care of patients and the continuity of care of patients that have been cared for by these oncologists for many, 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 many years. Is there a motive behind this? And I'm going to get you to think and that probably 340B. The program of 340B where hospitals could make a lot of profit if they are part of the 340 program because they acquire the drugs at significantly cheaper costs. So why is this happening? Ultimately, it's about economics. It's about dollars and cents, and it's about money. Uh, I'm very grateful that Drs. Moshe Chasky and uh, Lor uh, Turgeon have agreed to come on the Healthcare Unfiltered podcast to share their story, to share what happened, the information uh, about the lawsuit, and everything that you need to know that should pique your interest about what is happening in the healthcare ecosystem in our country. Before I air the episode that I taped with these two amazing doctors on October 5th, 2023, I'll remind you to, uh, you can watch this podcast on my YouTube channel and you can subscribe to it, rate it, refer your friends and colleagues to the podcast. Don't forget to let me know what you think I'm doing. Visit my website, shadinabhan.com. And as always, if you want to read something, read Toxic Exposure, the true story behind the Monsanto trials and the search for justice. Without further ado, the Jefferson Saga on Healthcare Unfiltered. Laura, maybe uh, introduce yourself a little bit about you and uh, how long you've been doing oncology for. So I've been practicing oncology 35 years, uh, always in the Philadelphia area and uh, always in Northeast Philadelphia. 
So when I started practice, we went to a number of hospitals, but eventually consolidated pr primarily to uh, what used to be Frankfurt Hospital, which had a Frankfurt and Tarsdale division. They eventually bought the Bucks division up in, up in Bucks County. And I mean, I, I realized around 15 years ago that it was going to be impossible to make a living in oncology as a small group. And we were five or six doctors back then. So I brought together uh, most of the private oncologists in Philadelphia to talk about merging. There were probably 11 or 12 private practices back then. And uh, we, we managed to convince four of them to join us. And recently, an additional two joined us. So we have essentially six private practices, 36 oncologists right now. And, uh, you know, with with the consolidation of uh, multiple things, it's it's uh, it's much easier to survive in oncology as a larger group. And that is called the Alliance Oncology? Yes. So we have 15 sites. We go to, I think, 11 hospitals, something like that. So each, so it's six groups, but uh, each group maybe covers a couple of hospitals and you're under one entity, one business umbrella kind of thing. Yeah, and, and it's uh, the six groups really don't cross cover or interact, uh, you know, uh, from a from a coverage standpoint. We, all, of course, all communicate. We're on the same page about the way we treat and handle patients, uh, but uh, we're, we're, we're still independent groups under one. So is it like a U.S. oncology model, but without U.S. oncology, like you're self-governed and self... Uh... Yeah, so we were completely independent up to three years ago, and then we did join U.S. oncology, who was essentially a business partner. They have input from a business standpoint, more collegiate than anything else, but from a, um oncology standpoint, they have no input into anything we do. So they're... Right. It's really completely transparent. Most doctors have nothing to do with U.S. oncology at all. They wouldn't even know that they're a part of it. You know, as as more of a managing partner, I, you know, I interact with that more. But most of the oncologists are practicing the same as before we joined U.S. oncology. Great. And Moshe, a little bit about you. So uh, my name is Moshe Chasky. I am. I've been in hematology and medical oncology since uh, graduating Fox Chase back in 2008, and I've been in the practice for the past 15 years and have really believed in our practice uh, in the way we have taken care of patients uh, and um, in our independent uh, uh, practice model, but definitely seeing the value of the of the academic centers as well and interdigitating care with them. And we'll get into that as time goes on, but uh, who I am, I'm on the board of Alliance Cancer Specialists. I have um, been a uh, part of the uh, clinical practice committee of uh, the American Society of Clinical Oncology of ASCO. I'm the Avidia past president of the Clinical Practice Committee of ASCO. I'm also the president of Pennsylvania Society of Oncology and Hematology, so our Pennsylvania state group. Uh, and I'm also on the board of a Community Oncology Alliance. So I guess I have a, um, I, I definitely have a bend to, to, uh, to, uh, to have an understanding and involvement uh, in, in, in healthcare uh, policy and uh, how it affects our our patients. So I've been dealing with a lot of the issues that we're going to be talking about today, thinking about it since the since, since my fellowship. 
That's great. And um, and then just curious, because you guys have, have grown, obviously, are you doing general oncology or you've tried to work into carving out some subspecialties because you're about 36, although you're not always under one umbrella, but uh, do you all see general oncology or have you done subspecialization? We do um, general oncology. We do have um, uh, a few people that specialize. We have a breast oncologist in our group. Um, and that's been that for 15 years. Moshe, I'll, I'll start with you. Everything has been, you know, you have staff privileges where as, as your group, but uh, like what hospitals? We have st- we have had staff privileges over the years since 2008 in uh, the Jefferson Northeast uh, system. Uh, so uh, Jefferson Torsdale, Jefferson Frankfurt, and Jefferson Bucks. Um, Jefferson really wasn't involved in those systems until a few years ago. Laura and I were actually on the merging uh, committee when uh, Jefferson came in. It was previously Aria Torsdale uh, or Aria Bucks and Aria uh, and uh, and Aria Frankfurt. So it was the Aria system, and then you know because of financial reasons and consolidation of uh, of healthcare reasons, uh, Jefferson was making a was making a move at that time into acquiring several healthcare systems, and we were on the merging committee uh, at that time with, uh, with 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 Jefferson. And Jefferson seemed at that time to be a great partner for us. They came in and they assured us that we could you know continue. They they respect independent practices. Uh, they wanted to continue to work with us, definitely not work against us. And we were a great partner at the, at the beginning with them. How and long, uh, How long ago was that? Just for timeline, so we could get an idea. Laura's around 2016, around 2016. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's even less than that. Maybe five, five years ago, I think we were, even three years ago, we were getting along with them. So, so, so at the time, five years ago or so, Jefferson was trying to acquire additional practices. Is that no, so? In, in 2016, they acquired in, in around 2016, they acquired the hospital, mm-hmm. and there was this, and they also had acquired other hospitals in the region. So they had acquired um, Abington Hospital and they acquired a hospital in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. And then after us, they 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 acquired Einstein Hospital as well. Okay. And as part of the acquisition, they said, we'll have our own staff and you maintain staff privileges. Yeah, I mean, our, our problem at the time was that we had way out outgrown our space. We had 18 chemo chairs, we needed 30. And uh, we were we were uh, really totally outgrown, you know, tripping over each other in the office space that we had. So I had the idea of building a new infusion center over the emergency room where there was empty space and the hospital was agreeable to that initially. I actually designed the space, even picked out, we were picking out carpet and, and wallpaper and everything. And then um, uh, Jefferson kept meeting with us in a more or less friendly way, but kept kept at the end of the meeting would always say, um, but we really want you to sign a physician uh, service agreement. And uh, you know, we always said, we just wanna stay independent. We referred all of our work to Jefferson. Uh, we were working closely with the surgeons and everybody down there. We were sending transplant work down there. And uh, I think we were one of the largest referring practices to Jefferson um, in Philadelphia, even in any specialty is what I was told. But then they eventually just said, well, if you're not going to be employed, 
we're going to build the center ourselves and we'll compete with you. And, you know, we said, okay, that's, that'll, that's fine. If that's what you want to do. Um, you know, we were pretty, um, we were pretty sure that we could effectively compete with them and we were able to compete with them. So over the ensuing couple of years, we were still getting almost all of the work at the hospital and inpatient and outpatient work. And of course they weren't happy. Did they, did they build, did they build the center or no? They built it. They built it. They staffed it with really community oncologists from another hospital. And, um, and the hospitalists preferred us um, way over them. And, and we know that because we were getting all the work or almost all the work. So that lasted for, um, I think, a, a year or two. And then the chief medical officer met with the hospitalists and they were, they were putting pressure on them to refer the oncologists, putting pressure on them, but they still weren't referring to them. Some were, but most, most weren't. And then the chief medical officer in a meeting told them that they were no longer any reason to refer to us at all. And that all work must go to the Jefferson owned oncologists. And that if, and this is a quote, if you expect the hospital to have enough money to pay your salaries, you will stop referring any work to our group. So following that, our work dropped. So that is, that is what, where are we now? 2020 or? Uh, this was, uh, I would say, yeah, just around 2020. 2021 even. Even 2021. Okay. Probably 2021 because before that, in the middle of COVID, they evicted us because I left that part out. And we got a letter saying we have 90 days to vacate the premises. Uh, you know, we'd had a, a lease there for 25 years. We actually knew it was going to come. So we were already involved in some in, in trying to buy a building near there. So we were able to buy a building and completely renovate it and build a beautiful um, cancer center one mile from the hospital, which also, of course, they weren't happy with. So they, they just basically sent you a letter in the middle of COVID and told you to vacate the premises with a lease that you've had already for many years. Yeah, we had a year-to-year lease with them because we were trying to actually move to a larger space. It's one of the reasons we had a year-to-year lease. I was also the chief of oncology at the time, I was, um, and I was previously president of medical staff, and I was the director of the cancer center, which was a paid um, position. And I was, they didn't even call me. They just replaced me. They didn't even call me and fire me. They just, you know, one that fan out of, I wasn't any of that anymore. So that was, that was a little bit odd, but they were intimidating the hospitalists. They were, they were, um, uh, you know, threatening to fire them if they didn't refer only to us. There was a letter that came out that told them that they had to fill out a two page form Anytime they consulted us explaining the reason they didn't use their own oncologist and they were told that their bonus at the end of the year would be tied to um, how many of these forms were filled out. Can I add something? So yeah. I think from a, I just want to add a little bit of of commentary uh, 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 to this, just, just, just to illustrate exactly what's going on. Because if you look at the judgment, and we'll, we'll get into the to the court case that we we recently have have, but it's 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 one of the lines in there is that the judge is sort of questioning why would it make sense 
from a business standpoint of the hospital? She asked this question, why would it make sense from the business standpoint of a hospital of a practice that was paying their bills on time to the hospital and paying their rent every single month, never late, why would it make sense for them to evict that practice from the hospital? Why would it make sense that, a ho- and, and I'll add this on my end is, why would it make sense that, 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 that physicians that were very highly regarded in the community, um, I think all of us in our group now are, 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 are listed in, 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 in best doctors. We, um, we, we definitely gave, gave our all. We had a continuity of care with our patients every day. There, was a, there wasn't just like a rounder of the week or a rounder of the day. Each of us would see our own patients in the hospital um, and always on the phone with, 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 with any referring physician that needed help or a family member in the middle of the night, whatever they needed. Why, why would the hospital want us out? And um, I think they really wanted us. And I, and I, I you know, and this was not something personal. Um, I think what, what, what underlies all of this is the 340B program. And I know that because at one of the dinner meetings uh, early on when, when Jefferson came on, and this was always being being involved in healthcare policy for a, for a long time, I sort of always waited for this day when this when when this would happen. Is a administrator uh, from Jefferson came over to me at a, at a at a dinner meeting. I said hello, and they said they don't have time to talk to me. They're busy turning our hospital into a 340B program. And I said, why would you turn our hospital into a 340B program? We've taken care of everyone that came through the doors, indigent. Um, indigent or whether they whether they had insurance it it didn't matter we took care of everyone why would you need to do 340b and she basically left it there but it became very clear that they 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 their business strategy was to turn this hospital into a 340b program and turn that into a um a profit making machine for the hospital um, and we've seen that with with many with many other hospitals, and it's not like they they built they were building the cancer center down in North Philadelphia in the Frankfurt area where you know you could definitely argue that that that, that hospital needs 340B. They pushed it up to an area of uh, uh, of town where most people honestly do have have insurance uh, in in our area. Um, we we made it just fine with without having 340b but they they clearly were using it as their fun as their financial uh model i mean there were there was one point during the uh when 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 during the um the previous presidential administration when they they were on 340b pricing if you remember it was average sales price minus 22 percent and i thought that when they cut they were going to cut reimbursement to the hospital that would make that would sort of change their minds in terms of going after our practice, but they clearly said to us, "It doesn't matter if they if it's average sales price minus twenty two percent. We've done the we've done the numbers, and we're still going to come out on top." Which tells you how profitable that program is to the um, to to the hospitals. And I'm I'm going to get into that program. I want to try to make sure that listeners understand the timeline. So um, so I want to go back. You got a letter. To vacate the premises, you've got 90 days to do that um, uh, in the middle of COVID. Um, uh, obviously, the good news is you've had a place to go to that you already were thinking about. So it's, you had the foresight that this may actually happen. Obviously, the relationship was tense. Otherwise, you wouldn't have 
assume that this is going to happen. Did you seek legal action at that time? Did you say, you know, what, like, tell me what happened then when this happened, you vacated, you went there and what happened until the legal action started? And, and why, like what, what was the premise of the legal action? Yeah, so over the next, you know, as I said, over the next year or so, we were getting most of the work. So it was it was when we heard from the hospitalists in detail, you know, word for word, we were told what was told to them from the chief medical officer, that they were no longer allowed to consult us. And the hospitals were, were literally uh, intimidated and very scared to um, even consult us on our own patients, where they were told that they had to write an explanation in the chart. This is why I'm consulting Dr. Turgeon, because he knows this patient for 10 years, for example. So, um, you know, that that's when we started to seek legal counsel, because it didn't seem like this was um, above the board. And at the time, I don't think it was even in any of these hospitals contract that they were required to um, keep patients in the system. We were also aware that um, patients always have the choice and hospitalists, in fact, always have the choice of referring to whomever they think is, is best for their patients, you know, under Stark law. And since the referral base went from almost all of us to virtually none of us overnight, it was obvious it wasn't the hospitalist choice that uh, they didn't they didn't want to consult us. Moshe, did they did they work? I mean, I, I want to dissect this a little bit, but did they work on your staff privileges? And I mean, they they could make life more difficult by saying we're not going to renew your staff privileges when they're due. Or was this something that did not come up? Didn't really come up. It's hard for a hospital to do that because, and I always thought they would do something along those lines, but. It, it was an open medical staff, and there the, the hospital depends on many independent physicians to staff the hospital. Nephrology is excellent. Infectious disease are independent uh, physicians. So they have many independent physicians. It would be very difficult for them. They would have to start owning everyone um, in, in order to close the staff, and I don't think they were ready to do that. So they weren't able to just not renew our our, our privileges. Um, but then basically July 31st, there was a letter that went out, uh, that they, this is July 31st, 2023. So we should say we, we did get legal assistance when they started blocking the consults and it was definitely disturbing to us, but it didn't affect patient care that much in the sense that we still had staff privileges. We were still able to see our patients in the hospital. We only got consults on our own patients, but at least we were able to go see our own patients who we have been taking care of for years. And, and, and as you know, as an oncologist, a lot of these patients are extremely complicated after multiple lines of treatment. We would be able to see them in, in the hospital. So it didn't disturb us to the point that we would bring a, a lawsuit. I think what really disturbed us was July 31st, 2023. And from what I understand in my research, this this was unprecedented, is they decided they were going to take an exclusive contract with their own Sydney Kimmel Cancer Center, Jefferson Oncology Group. And they were no longer going to allow us to see even our own patients in our own zip code 
uh, who, who meaning it, we were we we were not even able to see our own patients in the in the in 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 the hospital, and that already crossed the line because it's one thing if you're going to block referrals from our practice, it's another thing if is and the judge says this in in her judgment also, they severed a sacred relationship between physicians and patients. And that's where that crossed the line to us. And we said, we we as oncologists have a pact with our patients when we're looking at them across the room that we're gonna be there for them through thick and thin. And if you're not going to allow our patients to be seen by us in the hospital, and you're gonna make them be seen by another oncology group, who by the way, also would feel uncomfortable seeing a patient on 10th line treatment. There's, it's a discontinuity of care. That crossed the line and we knew that we needed to get legal advice and, 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 and bring a lawsuit because we actually brought this to um, one of their, they had a committee, but they basically just listened to our viewpoint. And I basically said to them, I said, it's one thing if you wanna block our consults. You know, I, I think it's wrong, very wrong. I think I think you're affecting patient patient choice, but it's another level of when you are not allowing us to see our patients that we have a relationship with, and we have been taking care of for all the years, and they are only able to get to your hospital via nine one one call. That you're blocking our ability to see our own patients. I said, where where have we gone with our with our moral compass and whatever physician on on a task force i think there was a task force from from jefferson that basically wrote that in the name of continuity of care is why they're having an exclusive contract with the sydney kimmel cancer center but this wasn't continuity of care this is discontinuity of care right you're severing a relationship there's no way that anyone with a with with a high iq which everyone on that task force has is able to say that with honesty, that that's in the name of continuity of care. There was one reason that they did this, and that was they were trying to cancel us. They were trying to cancel our group completely from 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 our com community and and, and sever the, those relationships. And again, this all came down to their this this was a financial reason on the uh, on the, their yeah. end. They were, they were saying it was not, but it clearly was all financial. We'll go over the motive. So so what was the premise of the lawsuit? I mean, we're not the three of us are not lawyers, but we probably know enough about the law. Was it that you saying it's exclusivity? Was it it is a sacred relationship between patients? Like what like what is the legal premise of something like this in a lawsuit? Well, I mean, I, you know. The lawsuit was really, we had first off, hardly any time at all. We got six weeks notice that we were going to be, our staff privileges were going to be revoked. So, oh, so they, did, they did say that staff privileges would be revoked. So in addition yeah. to that, then after yeah. that, they said, we're going to revoke your staff privileges. They, were, they said they had an exclusive contract with Sidney Kimmel and that our staff privileges would be revoked. They would give us adjunct staff privileges, which only allows us to visit patients and have access to the EMR. We're not allowed to write notes or be involved in any way with their patient care. And those privileges have no due process, so you can be canceled immediately. Like literally, you can get a Monday and you can be thrown off the staff Tuesday. So we didn't think that was an acceptable, uh, you know, acceptable uh, outcome whatsoever. And once again, I mean, we're you know we're giving patients very toxic treatment that 
that does lead to hospitalization and we're responsible to take care of these patients no matter where they are, inpatient, outpatient, weekends, in the hospital, out of the hospital. Uh, and, and, and Laura, was that only in one hospital or other hospitals? Because you guys obviously are a big group. You have different hospitals. Did this is, happen only in that one hospital? That happened really. It's really Tarsdale is where the issue is. Okay. Uh, we, were, we have very few patients admitted to the other two divisions. Our patient population is really concentrated around Tarsdale Hospital. Okay. So that we, you know, we, we, the, the way the lawsuit was presented was up to our lawyers. I'm not sure. Sure. It was entirely the right direction to go in. Unfortunately, to get a restraining order, we had to show really immediate and irreparable damage to us. And the problem is the damage is really irreparable, perhaps, and immediate to our patients. So it it is it was difficult in court to prove that this would permanently, um, you know, harm our practice or the doctors. And that's really not why we took brought the suit anyway. We brought the suit because of our concern for our patients, period. So you issued the lawsuit. The lawsuit goes usually in front of a judge, and the judge decides whether it goes further or it gets dismissed, right? That's usually the... Yeah. the so Moshe or Lord, what happened after you, you filed the lawsuit? You've got six weeks. What happened after that? So it was, it was uh, filed in federal judge, and she denied a... A temporary restraining order, which allows them to proceed with what they were allowed to do anyway. It's a very, very high bar to get a temporary restraining order against the hospital, almost impossible. And uh, and if you read if you read her comments, she she said in her comments that she thought we had a weak case from an antitrust standpoint. But there are many other aspects of this anti-kickback, Stark Law. You know, monopolization, uh, you know, anti-competitive behavior, et cetera, that that's bad for us, bad for the community, bad for patient choice, bad for the cost of health care. And she commented to many of those things in a report that she really thought this was not good for the community of Northeast Philadelphia. She didn't understand why a hospital would do this. And, you know, to us, it's obvious why they're doing this. So, um so, so she, this was not favorable. That was disappointing. Moshe, were you disappointed when you saw how the judge reacted to the lawsuit? This, this was done without prejudice, meaning that she left the case open for further litigation right. if we if we want to. So she didn't really find against us. She just denied us temporary restraint order. Okay. So Moshe, what was next? Yeah, and, and and like Laura says, because the bar is just so high for for an antitrust uh, case. So next, we're basically weighing out our possibilities right now in terms of um, uh, uh, how uh, how to did proceed. You lose your, did you lose your staff privileges? So we did. So on September sixteenth, we lost our our staff privileges. We do not have staff privileges. We do have internal medicine privileges. So even though we're, we are all triple board certified in internal medicine, hematology, and medical oncology as a compromise, and I think the judge spent a long time with us in the room, she wanted, she wanted us to be able to continue to see our patients in the hospital and to continue to be involved in our own patients. Because after we explained to her how devastating this would be to our patients, she tried to find some sort of of, of compromise and sort of a compromise that 
that, that Jefferson came to was to give us internal medicine privileges. The issue is, is they also let us know that we are not allowed to have an internist consult another internist, which is a duplicative consult. So right now we're in the same position that we that, that they wanted us to be in, which is that we're able to see our patients in the hospital as a visitor, but we're, we're unable to write orders on the patients or really be in, involved in their in, in their care day to day. And so who, us, who's, ta just, who's taking care of them? Who's taking care of these patients? The Jefferson so Hospital is taking care of them. You definitely have hospitals taking care of them. We're trying to develop a relationship with the oncologists from the uh, Sydney Kimmel Cancer Center, but I can't imagine, and after talking to them, there's no way that they feel comfortable taking care of our patients when they're that sick and have so much history behind them and don't have access to their medical records to properly take care of them. It, it, it's, it's just bad care. And if, if this were a hospital that truly believed in the patients and truly believed in taking care of the community, there's no way that they would do this. And they call themselves a nonprofit institution and one that cares about the community. They're, they're, they're neither. And, and, and I think they showed their, their, their true, their, their true colors with this, that in a, that, that what they were after is clearly just the finances here. And to me, for the patient to get in the middle of that is, is, is that's tragic. You want to, you, you want to affect our, our referrals, whatever that's 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 maybe you could say that's business i think that's terrible for patient care because you've eliminated patient choice when patients truly believed in our group first but they're no longer able to consult us i think that's terrible for the community but it's another level that we're in the middle of taking care of that patient that happens to be admitted to that hospital that we're no longer able to write notes and be involved in the patient care and as you know as a doctor it's different when you're going to visit a patient and looking at the chart and actually being involved in their care. To me, they've turned their back on their mission. Explain to listeners why you think this is 340B. Maybe there are folks who don't know what 340B is. I mean, it seems to me that you, you both believe that this was the motive behind all of this based on a multitude of events that happened, including what Moshi shared earlier that one of the administrators told them that he was trying to turn the hospital into 340B. How how does that uh, this actually work? And what made you, I guess, suspect that this is really the real motive behind all of this? Well, I mean, this has been going on all over the United States. So this isn't uh, just Jefferson. What I mean by, I don't mean that doctors are being, having their staff privileges revoked. I think that Jefferson has been the most aggressive of any hospital in the United States actually revoke an oncologist's privileges who's been on the staff for 30 years. But the, the intimidation of hospitalists, the, the uh, hospitals buying their own oncologists to compete with the, the private oncologists is, is going on all over the country. And it's clearly motivated by 340B. So 340B is a, is a piece of legislation passed, I, I think, in the 70s. Is that right, Moshe? Uh, that it was actually 1992. 1992. So um, I'm an old, uh, I'm old, so <laughs> not that long ago. But. So this was passed for a hospital that is in an indigent area. Temple would be the perfect example in Philadelphia. They give a lot of free care. And in order to make up for how much free care they're giving and how much investment they give into the community, 
for poor and indigent patients, they were able to get drugs at a discount, which was mandated by the federal government for pharmaceutical companies to give them a 30 to 50% discount on drugs. Now in 1992, the average chemotherapy drug probably cost $150. Now the average you know, chemotherapy drug is enormously expensive, often 10 to $15,000 a month. So whereas when we give chemotherapy, we, we get enough, we get three or four, three, three and a half percent from Medicare over what we pay for it, gives us enough money to pay our, our nurses at least, which are of course very expensive. But um, you know, the profit margin that we're getting is, is nothing like the hospitals. They also have contracts with insurance companies that are much better than ours. And they also get a facility fee, which is thousands of dollars per uh, administration. So, I mean, there's, there's national data from, um, you know, some of the uh, recent transparency that hospitals are, are, are forced to give to the federal government that predicts that uh, drugs that cost $100,000, that they may be making as much as uh, $100,000, $200,000 a year on that drug. So the, the profit, their, their acquisition is cost is less and the profit margin becomes much higher. Yes. And I'd, and I'd just like to point out that at trial, the judge at one point stood up and said, I just don't understand why you can't coexist, right. talking to Jefferson, with the doctors who have been there for so long. And this should be something we could negotiate. What, 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 was, what was Jefferson's contention? Obviously, they're not going to come and say, this is 340B, want to make more money. Like, what were they actually saying to the judge? Let me just finish sentence. So the, 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 the um, lawyer stood up and said, we implemented the exclusive contract last night so we cannot negotiate. So that was very telling that um, they, they didn't want to negotiate, that, that uh, they, they had made up their mind they wanted us out. So what, 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 like what was Jefferson's defense? Like I'm trying right. to think, think what, what they can't say to the judge, we're just trying to make more money through 340B. What, what was their, when, when the judge asked the question. They said it's the continuity of care. And I said, so it's continuity of care for your patients and discontinuity of care for our patients. And that's not fair to our patients. But honestly, they don't care about that. This is driven by money, and you know Jefferson. I, I, yeah, I don't dispute that. I guess my I'm trying to think why the judge could not see that this is disrupting your patient care. These are your patients; you cared for them for years. I'm struggling to understand why the judge did not see it. She did see it. There just was not let. There was just not legal precedent I for see. an antitrust suit, which is a very complex, very expensive suit to bring against the hospital. It's a, it's, it could be a multi-million dollar suit. We didn't have really enough time to do much else. And I think we're moving in a different legal direction now. I think she, I think she struggled, uh, the, the judge with this, because I think if she really tried to, she really tried to understand this is from my, my, my reading through this and sitting in the courtroom with her, I think, we were dealing with a, from a legal standpoint, we were dealing with an antitrust suit and a financial matter. And we were talking as doctors and our patients and out, about our patients. We weren't there for a financial issue. We were there about, about our patients. And from a legal standpoint, I think she's, she basically said, I'm a, she's a judge. 
And the legal system could, was, was looking at, at fair trade here. And in terms of patients and discontinuity of care and everything that we were talking about, there was a task force from Jefferson that basically came out with physicians on it to say that they were doing this in the name of continuity of care. So who, who, who is she as a judge to, to, to basically go against that? And I would ask, and, and I've, I, ha- I, t- I said at the beginning of this call that I am involved in multiple societies. I would a- ask our societies, where where are they in this? I know Community Oncology Alliance has taken a stand against this, but I think other organizations need to as well. I think American Society of Clinical Oncology, I think, I think even NCCN. Have you, have you reached out uh, a motion? I did. I, I have. I have. And I, I re- reached out to our state, uh, Pennsylvania Medical Society, because I'm involved with that. I have. I have reached out. But I think it's very difficult. First of all, I think it's very difficult because a lot of these organizations are also have many uh, universities under them, which are part of their membership. It's difficult for them to take a stand um, against them. Community Oncology Alliance can because they're all they just represent independent oncologists. But the other uh, other organizations, I think it's I, I think it's difficult. But here. In this case, it's about patients. It's not. It's it, it's about patients, and I think I think physician organizations need to take a stand. But I, I'll go a step further. Is I think I do not think that the doctors of Jefferson. I want to make this clear from the, the beginning. We get along with all of the physicians in Jefferson, and we have nothing against the physicians in Jefferson. If anything, if we choose our referrals based on who's the best. If we think the best neurosurgeon or the best whatever doctor, whatever specialist is at Jefferson as opposed to another institution, today, tomorrow, I'm still referring that patient to 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 that to that physician. So our gripe is not with the physicians. And I think if you ask the physicians in Jefferson, they would tell you that this is that for the most part, except maybe in the very high leadership, they would say this is terrible for patient care. And we actually had a had a petition with I think close to 90 names of physicians in our organization, many of which actually work for for Jefferson, telling Jefferson that this is terrible for the institution to doing this. It's terrible for patient care to to be throwing off a group that actually takes great care of patients. They knew our quality. So this is not, this, this wasn't physicians that made this decision. This was a financial decision. No, uh, Moshe, earlier you shared with me a graph that I thought was very interesting. And, uh, you know, just uh, uh, about the uh, how hospital services also are increasing significantly more than anything else. And it's it's another testament. And, you know, if we put completely a business hat, economic hat and, and healthcare cost hat, there's so much research and data out there that demonstrate that patients cared for in the outpatient setting under the care of uh, community practice honestly is cheaper than a large um, hospital system you know barring the complex surgeries and transplants and things like that um, is this is this an angle that you believe there's a way leveraging this angle as you move forward I do. I mean, I think definitely in the public eye, we need to get that out. If you 
follow the recent uh, news articles. I mean, last week, Anna Matthews wrote an article in the Wall Street Journal about the Indiana system, how Indiana uh, has a higher cost of health care than anywhere else in the country, mostly because of the consolidation of healthcare systems taking over the market and driving up prices. And the employers there have taken a stand there up against the hospital. So this is not just going on uh, in Philadelphia. This is really going on across the country. And I think we we need to get that message out there. Last week, you know, we talked about 340B. And in my entire career, I've been screaming from the rooftops about how it's a program that was really meant meant for the poor. And, it's, and you could argue that it, it had good intentions, but it's a program that, you know, for lack of a better word, has has metastasized into something that it was not intended to be. When you when you have a program that was meant for the few hospitals in the country that need it, the Temple Hospitals of the world, the Bellevues of the world, the Frankfurt Hospitals of the world, it, it, the, these hospitals really needed it. But when 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 every hospital is consolidating and then making all of their uh, locations in whether they're even if they're in very well off neighborhoods getting 340B pricing, that's that's a problem. I mean, and that's a problem. And and that's that's become one of the drivers for for the consolidation of healthcare. And, 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 and it's raised costs because now you're basically, if you're the insurance company, you have to play ball. If there's only two or three healthcare systems in your area and you have very little independent uh, uh, physicians, you have to negotiate with these healthcare systems and the prices go up. And that's definitely been shown. And the abuse of this program was has been shown in multiple articles, both the New York Times uh, and the Wall Street Journal. I mean, there was that article on on, on the Bon Secours program in, in Virginia where they they basically had a hospital in an indigent area which deserved 340B, but they did nothing to invest in that hospital. They took the healthcare dollars from uh, based on that hospital and they invested in in the wealthy neighborhoods and for the, I said for the first time so last week and this happened uh, le- uh last Thursday the help committee uh in, in in the senate that was from that that's the health education labor and, and pension committee um headed uh and and this this letter was headed by uh senator Cassidy from Louisiana he asked both the Cleveland clinic and the Virginia program to show where they're giving where where they're giving their charity from. He wanted he, he said this 340B program was meant for a certain purpose. Show me how show me exactly where you're spending your dollars. Is it really being done it be, being used for charitable purposes? And I would argue that in many cases it's just you it's just being used to pay to pay the bills, the other bills of the hospital. Yeah, I tend to agree with you, actually. I did a podcast uh, two years ago, almost now, on 340B program, and I interviewed a policy, uh, healthcare policy scholar. But it's unfortunately one of those things where a lot of people know it's a, it's a, it's a program that is being abused. Uh, I have not seen any progress towards refining it or kind of like changing it to make sure you kind of close the loopholes in the system. Uh, I don't know, Laura, I mean, you know, have you seen any changes to repair that? I mean, everybody knows 340B gets abused, but nobody's doing anything about it. I mean, I think it's getting more attention, um, you know, politically right now than it ever has before. So, you know, if if it it could be 
either such site specific or patient specific, the whole system would the whole thing would make a lot more sense than it does now. Right now, it's it's basically unregulated. And yeah. you know, I, you know, university hospitals are something that all of us need. Nobody wants, of course, um, nobody wants Jefferson not to be able to make make a living. And if they get very good pricing on drugs, you know, all all power to them. The problem is that every community on many many community oncologists across the country are becoming 340B hospitals, and then they're trying to get rid of their oncologists that have, they're in private practice and bring in their own oncologists to make 340B money. And it's it's not for quality; it's it's for financial gain. So, Moshe, what's next? Like, what I mean, you guys. I mean, I guess there are the operational logistical components of things, right? You have a cancer center or a building a mile away from a hospital that you cannot admit to, pretty much. I mean, so if you have a patient with neutropenic fever, where are you going to send that patient? Or they admit you admit them there, you just cannot care for them. It's by the hospitalist. You can just go visit with them and say hi. It's just it's mind-boggling to me. I mean, what is the what's the plan? Whatever you work. can share, I presume maybe yeah, you can I, share everything, it, it, but whatever you very, can share. It, the answer is it's very different. We spent a long time. We spent a long time, and, and this sort of hits it hits a nerve when 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 I talk about it. But I spoke about this in court, and I'll, I'll say it again. We, I tried to explain. The judge was trying to understand why can't you guys just be on the staff of another hospital? Go, you know, there there are hospitals all over Philadelphia. Just join a hospital that's that's ten miles away. And what I said to the judge is that those of us in this courtroom. Are, are, are privileged people that if if we got cancer we could get to the we could get to the other side of the country if we needed to to get care we could get to the Mayo Clinic we get to California we get to wherever we need to because we have good health insurance and we may we 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 maybe have act we have access to 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 some extra dollars that we're able to get on a plane and, and get places and there and and we have cars that we're able to get to, to places and we have and. and Many of us are part of religious institutions to, 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 to that, that will help us to get rides to places. We take care of many patients, but there are other people in this country, and these are many of the patients that we take care of, that it's difficult for them to either even get a mile down the road. And it's tough to picture that when, when, when you're sitting in a courtroom with, 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 with many people that don't necessarily look like that. But these are hardworking people that have a hard time making making car payments. They take they could take two or three buses to get to, to our office to tell them to go ten miles away when they're sick yeah. to get to another hospital. It's it, and and they're not part of a a church or they're not part of a, a synagogue that's that's going to help them to get to those places. These are places and they don't often don't have family. Who's going to take care of them? So they right. end up in this hospital where we're we are unable to get to. So. Will we work our way around it? We're, we're, we're doing the best that we can. We're visiting our patients in the hospital now. We, w- when possible, and we have patients that could drive to other places. We, 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 we do have privileges in in another hospital. We're working through that, but this is a, uh, this is the. I think we're most heartbroken for 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 our patients here. Is what it comes down to. Well, Laura, are you able Are you able to appeal the judge's decision, Lor? Yes, we can. I mean, this is still an open case, and we can file a new complaint with completely different, um, you know, a completely different lawsuit if we so choose. The re- but the, I just want to add the motion. The really sad thing is if you can imagine a patient 
that you've treated for a year or two who is declining and gets admitted to the hospital and the decisions about, about what care is appropriate, whether they should be on hospice, how aggressive you want to have be, you know, the family, you know, the, you know, the husband, you know, the children already. And that discussion will go on without you present with people who don't know the patient. They don't know the family. It's disgraceful. Well, it's, I mean, it's that's really that's when you have to be with your patients. I mean, we all had examples. I mean, I, I had a patient recently admitted to the hospital before we lost privileges that the the, the the reading radiologist basically said that the patient had a liver abscess and needed drainage. And I came on the case the next morning and said, no, that's not a liver abscess. That was actually the result of a, a, a radiofrequency ablation. And it looks like an abscess, but it's just that's where the liver was treated by an interventional radiologist. And this guy is fine. He does not need any drainage. He doesn't need any unnecessary procedures. And that was the end of it. It was very simple. And it's not because I'm some brilliant physician. It's because I knew the, the patient. It's, it's simple continuity of care. You we know, know our history. patients. You know the history. This is really, I mean, did you think about bringing patients to the courtroom? I, I don't really think we had enough time to organize very much. They didn't yeah. give us much time here. And, yeah. uh, you know, we, it's just, I mean, we I, got I think six weeks of two weeks to get the lawyers on board. You got to, you got to do it. And you've got maybe two weeks to organize the whole thing. So we're going to reorganize. And uh, I, I don't know where this will end, you know, hope, hopefully. Well, I mean, I, you know, I guess, I mean, in addition to this podcast and others, have you engaged the press more? Uh, I mean, I think there's an element that is not really the legal action, but really awareness, press articles, uh, journalists, uh, I don't know, 60 minutes, uh, whatever it is that uh, any outlets where people should become aware has this. I'm not sure how easy it is to get on these outlets, but have you thought about these? Yes. And we're and we are we're, we're willing to talk to people because I think we need to get this message out to the people, because I think it's it's very difficult, you know, for, for even legislators to get to get a program like 340B straight, because. Honestly, when you look at city by city, many times the biggest employers are, are, are actually the hospitals. Um, but it's a program that that has just that has just gone awry. And I think we need to get patients to actually understand that this is bad and we need we need a voice from the people to understand that this is really bad when you when you're taking away patient choice. Yeah, I don't think a lot of people, Moshe, will struggle in seeing that this is bad, to be honest. I think that most people, when you talk to them about, you know, the relationship and how it's became fragmented, most people will understand that and I think will sympathize with it. But I think there's another element to what Laura actually mentioned earlier. There's the legality of things, right? There's There's... You know, you still have to prove something, I guess, in the court of law uh, to be able to win. Uh, and that that is a whole, you know, different ball of wax. Yeah. 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 And we're exploring those areas. You know, what we learned in the courtroom and even though and the, and the judge definitely showed sympathy, she has to she has to rule based on facts uh, right. on, on the law, actually on the law, not the facts on on and 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 and. 
you know, there, there, there's law and then there's, and, and then, and then there's the mercy, but in, in a, in a federal court, you're, you're definitely, yeah. you're, you're not going to win on that. Well, I would love to have you back in six months. Hopefully we'll have some progress into what's going on, but uh, I, I appreciate you both being with me, doctors Moshe Chasky and uh, uh, Lord Turgeon uh, being on the podcast. Appreciate you spreading the word and having people really become aware of what's actually going on. It's really important. And uh, if you don't mind coming back in a few months, keep us updated. I'll be following this case very closely and uh, I heard about it through some coverage, uh, but uh, I was not aware of all of these details. Thank you so much for coming on. Okay, folks, thank you so much for listening. I appreciate you taking time of your busy schedule on listening to this fascinating story, the evolving legal saga that Healthcare Unfiltered will continue to cover. We cover all healthcare topics that are timely, important, and of relevance to oncologists, healthcare professionals, physicians, and most importantly, patients. I appreciate you tuning in. Don't forget to let your friends and colleagues know about the show. Follow me on Twitter at Chadi Nabhan, Instagram, Chadi underscore healthcare unfiltered. Let me know how you think I'm doing and subscribe, rate, refer to the show. As always, healthcare unfiltered got your back, and will always bring you topics that are of interest to you week in and week out. Before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with a saying by Winston Churchill. Now, this is not the end. It is not even the beginning of the end, but it is, perhaps, the end of the beginning. Until next time.